It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. During my time in Washington, D.C., one of the most haunting noises ever was the echo of the empty chamber. Uh, whether that was in the House or in the Senate. Uh, and that's where most of the speeches, the things that you see on members' uh, social media pages or you catch on the news, uh, they're really not talking to anyone except for the poor interns who are sitting on the steps uh, just trying to bide their time. Uh, but that echo of the empty chamber, there was this moment during the vote uh, to confirm Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson yesterday uh, that I wanted to capture. You had... All of the senators, with the exception of Rand Paul from Kentucky, who was missing somewhere, you had 99 senators all in the chamber sitting at their desks. And I thought, if we could just lock the door and then just force them to actually debate and have amendments and votes in front of the American people, uh, that could be it. Uh, but I think it's something that we've sadly lost in our nation's capital and uh, really pleased to have joining us on the program today, Kevin Kosar is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the co-editor of the book Congress Overwhelmed, The Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so this is the big question. Are we doomed? Are we just doomed to the echo of the empty chamber, these long monologues uh, by lawmakers to nobody but the interns, uh, the Senate pages? Uh, is Democratic debate dead? Uh, Democratic debate on the floor of the House and Senate is all but dead. Might revive itself at some point in time, but there are no signs that it going to come back anytime soon because the people who run the chambers the speaker and the majority leader they don't want to have debates they don't want to use the floor for debates they want to keep whatever debate we have tucked off in dark corners where others can't hear it and where it's limited to a small number of players yeah that uh, behind closed doors uh, should cause er the hair on everyone's neck to stand up that's uh, a <laughs> that is a red alert signal uh and and you mentioned something really important Kevin tell us a, a little bit more uh you mentioned that it's the leaders leaders of both parties uh who don't want to have debate on the floor of the house and the senate tell us why well they are very concerned with public relations and appearances they don't want to see their party's ideas be questioned, debated. And the last thing they want to see is their members listening to other people and then changing their minds. And, you know, that sounds crazy to the average listener out there because isn't that what debate is supposed to be about? Isn't that what a legislature is supposed to be for? But leadership's terrified of that. Um, they 
want to keep debate at a minimum um, because they think it's going to maximize their chance to just push through partisan legislation on a uh, you know straight party line vote. Yeah, that's what we continue to see. And uh, yet a, a great piece on uh, the public discourse is is Democratic debate dead. Uh, and as you went through that, you you talked about uh, uh, a specific example in, in voting rights, uh, that uh, there was just very little time. It was kind of all predetermined by the leaders of both party how it was, how it was going to play out. Uh, but give us some perspective there in terms of of why, you know, why is it that we can't get past that? Why can't we actually get to a uh, res- restoration of what used to be the world's great deliberative body, but I don't think they've deliberated uh, in a really long time? Yeah, I, you know, the cynical side of me says that in some cases, uh, each party is more interested in owning the issue than in solving the problem. Um, when you look at the the so-called election debate in the Senate in January, it was a big deal. You know, my gosh, the Senate's actually going to debate and they're going to do it for, you know, part of two days in a row. Highly unusual in this era. Perfectly normal behavior back in the old days, but highly unusual now. What we got was not a debate. There was no effort to allow members to go back and forth with one another offer amendments, and actually hash out something that they could all agree upon. So what we got was Democrats and Republicans giving contrasting monologues, occasionally responding to one another's monologues, and then just having a party-line vote. And that was that. And it's not surprising because the legislation itself, these two bills which were rolled together and were more than 700 total pages, those bills were written entirely by the Democrats. Those bills did not go through regular order. Democrats have for a long time thought that when it comes to the issue of elections and voting, they can put a black hat on Republicans, which Republicans honestly do help them do sometimes. Right, right absolutely. <laughs> and that's what they use the floor speeches and the Senate session to do, to just pound on the GOP and not to try to solve the problem. Yeah, uh, and so often uh, we're, we're equal opportunity offenders around here. And uh, I think you're right. I think the Republicans give them plenty of uh, opportunities to place that black hat squarely, <laughs> squarely in place. Uh, and, and you also mentioned in your in your piece that uh, because they're not debating, because they're rarely in there together, other than when they're waiting for their turn to give their monologue, uh, that uh, what happens is that these speeches become less about talking to each other and having conversations and debate as much as it is just trying to please some outside group or position yourself for a a nice uh, fundraising email campaign. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speeches are not looked at as a means of debating the matter uh, and deliberating and perhaps coming away a little bit smarter uh, with a compromise that works for everyone. Instead, it's, it's viewed as a vehicle for either pounding the other party uh, raising money, uh, polishing one's own kind of personal star. You know, so many of these senators, you know, dream of being president. And they think if they just do this sort of stuff enough that they'll, you know, one day get the job. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it shows uh, campaigning crowding out the responsibilities of governing. Yeah. I used to always say as a chief of staff that, you know, every member of Congress gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror, and they actually see a senator staring back. A senator looks in the mirror, and they see a president uh, 
staring back and a chief of staff looks in the mirror and they can see their spouse screaming at them for, you know, why are you still not home? It's midnight. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, they they certainly are aspirational and be nice if we connect those aspirations to the kind of responsibilities of the office. But you're you're mentioning a spouse is a a good example. I mean, imagine if a, 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 a husband has a difficulty or disagreement with his spouse, but instead of sitting down and hashing those agreements out face to face in an odd sort of way, that person got up instead and, you know, did a Facebook live speech denouncing <laughs> their spouse for failing to agree with what the husband wants. And then the spouse returns this the favor. Yeah. Like, are you gonna solve anything? No, you're just sowing mutual enmity and hatred and that anger. Contempt, yeah. And that's what we see too much of. Yeah. Here in DC. Yeah, far far too much. Well, Kevin, before I let you go, uh so so we're gonna declare we're not gonna say it's completely dead. I think it's on life support. Uh, what's it going to take? Is it going to take just a, a new generation? Is it going to take some cataclysmic uh, uh, political event? Uh, what could get what could get that deliberative debate uh, off of life support and uh, get that heart pumping just a little bit better? Uh, I think first voters have to become a little more sophisticated and quit falling for the trap of viewing politics as entertainment and as a way of kind of venting your spleen. You know, I think a lot of people get excited when they have representatives or senators who get out there and shout and say, I'm a fighter for you. Well, that's all well and fine, but that doesn't solve the problem. All you're doing is venting your spleen. So what? So voters got to get a little more sophisticated and, and, try to get past that desire. Because I know we're all mad at Congress, we're all mad at the government, all that sort of stuff, sure. But just being mad is not solving anything. So back people who solve problems and vote against people who just get up there and put on a show for you. Yeah. Uh, great insight. Kevin Kosar, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, great piece. Great insight. He's co-editor of the book Congress Overwhelmed, The Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Return. Uh, Kevin, thanks for joining us on a Friday. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right, we'll step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back. It's often said that while Republicans want small federal government, Democrats favor big federal government. But are we really that far apart? Maybe not so far. Find out why coming up next. Stay with us. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.